find myself being especially grateful this morning for the godly and gifted men that the Lord has granted to this church. Uh, as we've seen already this morning through leading us in singing and leading us in the reading of God's word and leading us in prayer, uh, we are being served. Uh, and it is an increasingly rare thing in this day and age to see men, especially young men, uh, committed to that and dedicated to it for the good of the church that Christ shed his blood for. So just a reminder of one of those blessings that we enjoy here at our church every week. Another blessing is to hear the word of God explained to us and applied to us. And so as we turn our attention to that particular opportunity this morning, I would ask you to follow along, if you would, in Hebrews chapter 13. We'll continue through this wonderful chapter, this concluding chapter of this epistle or uh, perhaps a transcript of a sermon that had become so important to the believers who were struggling with the temptation to go back to their former Judaism, to their former religion, uh, which the gospel had called them out of. Hebrews chapter 13 in order to get the context again, we'll go back and read from verse 1 all the way through verse 17. Hebrews 13, of verses 1 through 17. This is God's word. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood was brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. But through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. I do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is God's word. This is the second in a three-part series that we have called Christ Our Love. Now, we are going to look at what it means to love, what it means to love in the way that Christ loves and to love what he loves. Last week, we looked at what it means to love the brethren, and that took us through the first six verses of chapter 13. And just to remind you of what we covered there, we said that brotherly love here was something that was to continue. It was already present, but it had to continue. Uh, the believers there in the area where this letter was directed, possibly the city of Rome, were believers who knew how to love one another. 
Similar to the Thessalonians where Paul says, when it comes to love, I don't have to write you anything new. You're already doing it. Just do it more. Don't neglect to show hospitality, the love of strangers. The word xenon and phileo brought together to love the stranger in the same way that you love the brothers. Because some, like Abraham, had actually entertained angels. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Now, we didn't touch on this very much last week, because I think there's going to be a tie-in to this week. I believe that some of the leaders that are to be remembered here in this portion that we'll study today would have been in prison at that time. In fact, later on, we find out that Timothy has just been released from prison. It was not uncommon to find your pastor in prison. In those days, it was the leader who was held responsible for what was going on in the group. And the Christians in those days were not considered an actual religion. They weren't considered a viable group. They had no God that you could see. They had no temple that you could attend. Uh, They had these leaders who were more like rebel leaders, cult leaders. And what Rome was concerned about more than anything was the peace that they were enjoying at the time. And so whatever could possibly lead to uprising had to be shut down. And the way you shut down an uprising was to get rid of the leader. Many of the leaders had spent time in prison. Now, the Roman system was different than the system that we know of today. In fact, imprisonment was very rare. Prison was not a way that you paid your debt to society. It wasn't that way in Rome, and it wasn't that way in the Old Covenant. In fact, in both cases, there was either restitution or execution. If you were found guilty of a crime, you were not put away, locked away in a cell for decades. Instead, you were killed Or you were assigned a penalty that you had to pay back, and perhaps during the time when you were paying back that debt, you were incarcerated, but that was more of as a slave. In fact, if you were to be put in prison in Rome, most often if you were a Roman citizen and you had some means, uh, you were imprisoned in your own home under house arrest. We know that's what Paul was experiencing when he was in Rome. That's when he wrote the prison epistles. There was really only one other kind of prison, And the word in our English translation for prison applies to both the house arrest and this other kind, which maybe some of you know of in Rome as the Mamertine prison. Uh, That prison was a two-story prison. Uh, There was one that was in a windowless ground floor, and that's where most of the prisoners were held. But then for the worst of the prisoners, uh, for the ones that were doomed for execution, uh, they were tossed down a 12-foot deep hole into an inner chamber, which had its own spring of water inside of it, so it was constantly wet, constantly damp, constantly cold, completely dark. It was used earlier in Roman history as a cistern, and it emptied out into the city sewers. And you were put down there, and you were usually naked, and you were usually starved. In fact, most of the prisoners in there, according to historians, died either of exposure, strangulation, or starvation. This was the prison from which the Apostle Paul wrote 2 Timothy, uh, when he says to Timothy to bring his cloak. This was the the prison which was the the holding cell before you were executed. In fact, uh, historians tell us that at several points there was over 60 men confined into this space of only 20 feet long by 30 feet wide. And what happened is after the people had died, every once in a while the City officials would open up the gates to the sewers and they would simply shuffle the decomposing bodies out into the sewer system to be washed away. So when you hear the word prison, I don't want you to think about what an American prison is like. When we talk here about people who are in prison and need to be visited, it was because if you didn't visit them and bring them food and bring them clothing, they would probably die of exposure or starve to death. In fact, it was the Christians who were the earliest proponents of prison reform, you might say, of taking this inhuman way of dealing with people and trying to bring some degree of comfort, some some degree of, of civilization to it. It was the Christians who would visit their own in prison and also those who were not their own. Tradition tells us that on numerous occasions when Christian pastors were incarcerated along with the other prisoners, it was the testimony of those pastors and it was the love of the church that drew many of those other prisoners to Christ, just the same way the thief on the cross came to him. 
So far from just being a nice thing that you can do maybe on a weekday as a good deed to go and visit somebody who is in prison, you need to think of this as throwing them a lifeline. And so the, the writer says to remember those who are in prison as if you were in prison with them, those who are being mistreated, literally tortured, since you also are in the body. You can relate. It doesn't just mean you're in the body of Christ. That's kind of a secondary meaning. It means you're in the flesh, like you're in the body. You can relate to this. You can understand what this must be like. Try to empathize with them. And then allow that to be what stirs you up to show the kind of love that only you can show. Now again, this is all review, but let's continue. He said, let marriage, or or literally being married, let weddings, you could say, be held in honor among all. We discussed the different types of weddings that there were in the Roman day. There was the official wedding that we model our weddings after. There was also a wedding where you could simply purchase a bride and then the wedding that was regarded as nothing but common law. But here it says to let marriage, let being married be held in honor among all. Don't get married merely for the purpose of having legitimate children. Don't be like the Romans. Don't allow yourself to be drawn away from your one culture of the, 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 uh, the Jewish culture and then into the new culture, which brings in its own dangers. Instead, treat marriage as you know God would want you to treat it. Don't bring anything into the marriage bed that would defile it. Let it remain undefiled. Because God is the one who will judge. He will not be mocked, and he will not let marriage be mocked. Now, as you know, we live in a day and age where marriage is not only being mocked and derided and ignored, but it's being redefined. In fact, just recently in the uh, legislature of our country, marriage had been redefined into something that is entirely other than what marriage actually is. And so perhaps that disturbs you a little bit, and maybe on one level it should, but it should also come as no surprise that a nation would disregard what God says in his word, but let it also be a comfort to you that it doesn't matter what American politicians define marriage as. It will not change in God's eyes. He is not subject to our definition of marriage. His definition of marriage will remain and abide. But in this particular case, he says, I don't want you to let it be defiled, the bed. I don't want you to let it be disregarded. I don't want you to let it be redefined. Instead, remember that the sexually immoral and the adulterers will be judged. He also says, keep your life free from the love of money, literally the love of silver, the love of the money that was used for daily transactions to get stuff. Don't be covetous, you could say. So it's just as good a translation. Be content with what you have, because he says, I will never, never leave you and never, never, never forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear what can man do to me. That's a position of strength that the Christians got to operate from. And that position of strength would be needed. Because not only were you to love the brethren, but secondly, as we'll see today, the title for this message is, uh, you are also to love the truth. To love the truth. And when you love the truth, you put yourself at odds with the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the error that he promotes and has been from the very dawn of creation when he lied to Eve. You see, when you love the truth, you, you set yourself up invariably against the, the powers and the, the forces of this present age. And so the author is saying, this is going to be difficult, but it's critical. There are two ways you do this, our outline this morning, pretty simple, two ways you do this. One is to imitate. We see that in verses 7 through 16, and then in verse 17, cooperate. You imitate, and you cooperate. Let's look at the first one. We imitate. Beginning in verse 7, he says this, Remember, same word as before, your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Let's just pause there for a moment to make sure we understand what this means. It means that there were leaders. It means that there were influential people within the church. And what defined them as being influential, catch this, was not their popularity. Uh, It was not their ability to influence others. It, It wasn't their following. It wasn't their image. It wasn't the size of their congregation. It wasn't how many books they had written. Uh, What distinguished them was the fact that they were able to preach the word of God, the word of truth. Now, I know that we call the word of God our Bible, and you have it right there in your lap. You've got one in the pew rack in front of you. It's bound together. It's got 66 books in it, all of them inspired. And we say, this is the word of God, and it is. But to the original hearer, 
they would be thinking about the Old Covenant, right? The Old Testament, because the New Testament was still being written. Uh, They didn't have a Bible like you and I have. So when the Word of God is described here, they would be thinking more about the gospel. Those who preach the gospel to you. God's very word to you. Those who echo down through the generations the words that he gave to his followers in previous generations, you are to remember them. They echoed it. They spoke it to you. And the way that you remember them is to consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This is where the imitation comes in. We are by nature to be imitators. Imitators of those who are more mature. Imitators of those uh, who have walked with the Lord longer than we have. Imitators of those who know and understand the truth. Now, I do want you to notice here that imitating does not mean being infatuated with them. Imitating them does not mean putting them on a pedestal. Imitating them does not mean that you turn them into a celebrity. Have you heard of that these days? These celebrity pastors? Celebrity preachers? You know, one of my favorite texts is... In Galatians chapter 2. So turn over there. I just want you to I want you to see how Paul related to celebrity pastors. Because it's instructive. Go to Galatians chapter 2. And this is Paul's own testimony. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation, meaning God sent him there, and set before them though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure uh, that I was not running or had not run in vain. You see what he says? I, I had a meeting with those people who were influential. I met with the evangelical influencers of the day. I, I met with the, uh, the well-regarded ones, the, the celebrities as it were. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. He wasn't concerned about making his co-workers, Jewish enough to fit in. He didn't really care about that. Uh, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Do you see his concern? It was the truth of the gospel. Paul says, I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to the influential leaders and the apostles for one reason only, to make sure that what I am preaching is true. Make sure we agree. I don't care about their endorsement. I care about making sure that what I'm preaching is the true gospel. And those, verse 6, who seem to be influential, and in this inspired, parenthetical, personal comment, Paul adds, what they were makes no difference to me. Isn't that wonderful? I love that. Because nowadays, if people get access to the luminaries, to the influential ones, to the powerful ones, to the celebrities, as it were. They're tripping over themselves, trying to heap praise upon them and and lavish them with all sorts of attention. And they've gotten used to it. I had a conversation yesterday with a good friend who I've known for many, many years. We did work together about a decade ago, and we were both commenting on how extensive the riders have become for some of these celebrity pastors to come to a conference, what they expect of you, the type of travel they expect, the type of compensation they demand. It's incredible. I mean, you'd think they were spoiled rock stars. And you know what? In some ways they are. You know whose fault that is? Ours. Because so many people have treated them that way. I guarantee you, Paul did not run up to these well-known, influential leaders and say, hey, will you sign my Torah? He wasn't super stoked about meeting with them. He wasn't taking selfies. He wasn't lining up behind the velvet rope so he could get a picture. He said, I don't care. He goes, yeah, I guess they're influential, but what they were meant nothing to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Well, we could go on, but you get my point. Paul wasn't concerned about whether or not these influential people agreed with him. So I use that to help me understand what it means in Hebrews chapter 13 when I read about leaders. Leaders here are not merely influential people, celebrities, popular people. Leaders here are a very specific group of individuals. Individuals who were known for preaching God's word and for caring for the flock. In fact, even the preaching aspect is not that important. Even a gifted orator in the scriptures is not highlighted above somebody else. 
Apollos, he was mentioned as being very powerful with the word, but then right after he is mentioned, it is told that a couple, a man and his wife, sat him down to instruct him more fully in the way. In fact, there's one other example of a very popular preacher, well-known, so well-known in all of the ancient world at that time, that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 18, Paul, all he needs to do is refer to him as, quote, the famous preacher. You know who he was? Me neither. Because it doesn't matter. He drifted off the scene. So famous he didn't even need to be named. And now he couldn't be named because no one remembers him. You see, these leaders weren't the kind of leaders we have today. These leaders are the leaders that have been raised up from within the local church for the purpose of caring for the flock. And it is their faith that is to be imitated. It is their life that is to be respected. And the grounds upon which you respect such a person is their faithfulness to the gospel. One of my favorite authors is Michael Reeves, and he did a book on one of my favorite preachers, Spurgeon. So when you put the two together, I thought this is a good book. He's a historian, he's a theologian, thinks carefully and even critically about people like Spurgeon. When you talk about a celebrity preacher, there's somebody who was probably more famous in his day than uh, many of the, the royalty in London. But I want to read something from, for, uh, to you from this today, because what it does is it emphasizes where even somebody like him, who would fill up a room of 5,000 people, even someone like him was called the Prince of Preachers, even someone like him who was known all around the world for how gifted he was as an orator, who would stand up in front of this huge crowd and would preach from behind a rail, they would put a rail out front, and he would lean on that rail, and he would just expound the scriptures. And people were hanging off his every word. His sermons were published all over the world. What does he say about preaching? What does he say about the word of God being communicated to the church? Notice this. This is Reeves talking about him. He says, oh, well, <laughs> so Spurgeon said this, which is a great, great quote. For those who don't preach the gospel in their sermons, he says, quote, those men who take away the atonement from the gospel murder the gospel. They are like vampires that suck the blood out of the living man's veins and lay him dead. Practically, Reeves says, it meant that he insisted upon celebrating Christ's death in the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day and often broke bread during the week as well. And, quote, celebrating, he believed was the right word. The bread and the cup evoke no tears. They suggest no sighs. The memorial of Christ's death is a festival, not a funeral. And we are to come to the table with gladsome hearts. Amen. Now, I read that after I had preached about communion, but I'm glad to know that Spurgeon agrees with me. Glad to know that Spurgeon agrees. He says this later on. All good things lie within the compass of the cross. Its outstretched arms overshadow the whole world of thought. From the east even to the west, it sheds a hallowed influence. Meanwhile, its foot is planted deep in the eternal mysteries, and its top pierces to the earth-born clouds and rises to the throne of the Most High. Reeves goes on that the cross was so pivotal that Spurgeon made it the emblem of his pastor's college, surrounding it with the motto. So there was a cross, and on either side was this motto. Ateneo, ateneor, I hold and am held. I hold because Christ crucified is the saving and sanctifying truth that must hold out, we must hold out to all people. And I am held because the blood of Christ is what attracts us to Christ and what holds us safe in Christ. We labor to hold forth the cross of Christ with a bold hand among the sons of men because the cross lays hold of us fast by its attractive power. The ones that are to be obeyed, respected, submitted to, followed, remembered, are the ones who bring that word. That is what distinguishes them. That is what separates them. And that is their faith that's to be imitated. And on this basis, the author goes on to say this in verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever meaning that the gospel that he preached and the message of the cross isn't going to change. And so the leaders who are faithful to that message handed down generation to generation are the ones that are to be obeyed or the ones that are to be followed and to be imitated. 
Now, just in case there was some misunderstanding of this, that maybe Christ's plan had changed, look what he says in verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. You see, remember, there was this temptation, a temptation among the persecuted Christians to go back to Judaism, to go back to one of the recognized religions, because at the moment they were paying for it. To be a Christian was costly. They were, in fact, losing their goods. They were losing their reputation. Uh, Their leaders were possibly being put in prison. We know that the persecution was going to increase bit by bit until it became absolutely intense under the reign of some of the future emperors. Uh, They were going to be crucified. They were going to be burned at the stake. They were going to be set ablaze as torches in Nero's gardens. They were going to be torn to pieces by wild animals. They are going to be persecuted beyond description, and the temptation is going to be to slink back into a recognized formal religion where they can have some kind of safety. And the author is saying to them, don't deceive yourselves into thinking that there's some benefit there. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that you're going to be better off. It's not going to strengthen you. The only thing that will strengthen you is the grace that comes from God, not from fitting in again. And then, to make sure that they weren't misunderstanding this, he says in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood was brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. He's setting up a picture now. And this would have been very familiar to the people in those days, especially the Jews. Maybe a little less familiar to us, so let's make sure we understand it. On the Day of Atonement, the priests would bring two animals, a goat and a bull, and uh, the goat was there for the people, the bull was there for the leaders, for the priests. What they would do is they would kill that animal, normally by slitting its throat. And when you slit the throat of a, a large animal, there's a lot of blood, and that blood was collected in basins, and it was put on the altar, and it was sprinkled on the altar, and, and it was used as a way to signify the fact that The blood had covered the sins of the people and the sins of the priests. But the bulk of the animal was not burned up. In fact, the animal was really there for just its blood. There was a little bit of the animal that was burned up from time to time. But most of it was taken outside the camp. Meaning it went outside from where the camp was established to the place where you would burn the refuse. And it says in the Old Testament scriptures in Leviticus 16 that The carcass was taken out, Uh, the flesh, the hide, and the dung of the animal were all burned outside the camp as a sign of the, the shame and the disgrace, as a sign that the only thing this animal brought to the altar was its blood. There was nothing else. It wasn't to be eaten like many of the other sacrifices were. It was to be used for no purpose except to have its blood shed so that the blood would atone for the sins of the people. Now, with that imagery in mind, go back and look at what he says. With that imagery in mind, with with thinking about what was happening then in in that particular day with those animals, the Old Covenant context, so many of these Jews aware of exactly what was being pictured here, he then makes this startling statement in verse 12. So Jesus. And please, don't overlook the fact that he said Jesus. Jesus. Brothers and sisters, he uses the word Jesus intentionally to get your attention. He doesn't say the Messiah. He doesn't say Christ. When an author chooses to use the word Jesus, a name as common back then as it is today, a name that really meant Savior, but that was applied to many, many people. Lots of people had the name Jesus. That's why you don't need to get confused by people who say that if I do something in the name of Jesus, it'll happen. The name Jesus has no power in it whatsoever. The name Jesus was a common name. Lots of people named Jesus. Jesus went to school with a lot of other Jesuses. There are Jesuses today. Lots of Jesuses. Play baseball. The name is still common. Why Jesus? Why use that name here? It stops you. And it reminds you that there was an incarnation. That there was a real living person. And that historical person is in mind. 
And that historical person, God incarnate, notice what it says, also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Brothers and sisters, he is drawing a very powerful connection between this imagery of the animal that was brought in and killed and its blood put on the altar and then the rest of it burned in shame outside the camp and what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he came in utter humiliation. He lived a life of humiliation. He died in humiliation. And he himself crucified as a common criminal, according to the Gospel of John, outside the city gates of Jerusalem at Golgotha, where all the shame was put on display. That's where you killed common criminals. That's where the bodies were taken down off the crosses and thrown a few feet away into a public garbage heap where they rotted in public view. This is where the notion of Gehenna comes from. It was an actual location. It was a place where the fire literally never stopped burning and the maggots never stopped crawling. And it was into that place of shame that that the author is bringing our attention He says Christ himself was, in the eyes of the Sanhedrin, guilty of the charge of blasphemy. It's the irony of it. Jesus, in the eyes of the Jewish leaders, was killed for blasphemy. That was their justification. The Son of God, guilty of blasphemy, crucified outside the gate in shame, so that, the author says, he can make shameful people His shame is what opened up the door for your glory. The blasphemy that he was accused of but never committed makes up for the blasphemy that you're accused of and did commit. The blasphemy that caused him to give his life on the cross, a ransom for many, is the charge that led to a death that made it possible for you to live a life you could never live forever in glory with Him. And the sinless nature of His life was then granted to you so that you could stand before the holy judge of the universe one day, having fully and completely adhered to every aspect of the law because someone had did it, done it for you and then gave you that righteousness. The author wants to make it clear that there was nothing that went on in those old covenant sacrifices that ultimately provided the atonement. All of that stuff that happened was pointing to Christ who was the atonement. And now the connection in their mind begins to make sense. Oh, that animal was brought out there and it was burned and it was destroyed outside of the camp. Jesus was taken outside of the camp. He is the greater sacrifice. He is the great atonement. He is the one that all of this was pointing to. And therefore, in this life, the association with him is going to be one that is often in shame and sorrow and struggle and trial. That's the case earlier in this text. It's the case for those who are in prison. It's the case for those who associate with them. And it's the case even now because he wants to continue by saying in verse 13, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. The great encouragement to the people who are suffering and who are tempted to go back to Judaism is not an encouragement that tells them, hey, just do the best you can, you'll get through this. Or, hey, what you need to do is join forces with the other Christians and fight back. Stand up for your rights. He says, no, what you're going to probably have to endure in this life is the same suffering that our Lord endured. But that should come as no surprise. Because verse 14 is clear. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Beloved, this isn't it for us. This life isn't it. This world is not it. This nation is not it. This city is not it. Let us not cloud a clear understanding of the gospel and its promises to us with any shadowy replacement 
that says, well, I'm going to get some sort of glory here in this life. There's going to be some sort of justice and victory here in this life, that I'm going to do what I can to turn this place into heaven on earth. It's not going to happen. This city is crumbling. This city is falling apart. The city is temporal. We are not even citizens of this city. We are citizens of one place, and that is the eternal city. You're citizens of the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that will come down upon a physical planet and we will inhabit it in resurrected bodies. Patriotism is not a biblical virtue. It is a civic virtue and a subjective one at best. We are not called to pledge allegiance to any country. We are not called to pledge allegiance to anyone except Christ. He is the king. He is the ruler. And it is in his eternal city that we will dwell. Let us not become wrapped up in trying to make the corrupt and crumbling city of man into the eternal glorious city of God. He will do that. In the meantime, what we are, are lights and testimonies of what it will be like for those who will be rescued from this city and rescued from the judgment that is to come. And that is why, you'll notice in verse 15, through him then, what do we do? Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledges his name. If I can remind you what I said earlier about the the word Jesus, the name Jesus. Again, that, that name Jesus doesn't bear with it any particular significance. It was a common name. But notice here in this particular verse, he changes it. He says that acknowledge his name. Not his name Jesus, his name. The word name means his being, his purpose, his glory, everything that is about him. When Paul says in Philippians that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, he doesn't say, and the name Jesus, it's the name of Jesus. The name that belongs to the man known as Jesus. His great and glorious name, his being, his purpose, that is what has the power. Not the word Jesus. And so he says, may we offer up this sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips. It's an imagery that comes from Isaiah chapter 57. It really meant to give glory to God in the way that pleases him. These these truths that are spoken, may that be what we offer up. May that be what we imitate of our leaders to acknowledge his great name among everybody else. Do not, therefore, verse 16, neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. He says, far be it from just the testimony. It's not just the speaking, but it's also the doing. It's also the action. In fact, we're told it's not good just to love in, in, in word, but to love in deed. How do you take this love that we're supposed to have, this this Christ our love, this love for the truth, how does it manifest itself? It shows itself not only in speaking what is true, but in doing what is good. I know sometimes we are so overwhelmed by the reality that Christ has accomplished everything for us and that there is nothing we can do to improve our standing with him and that the law has been fulfilled and that his righteousness has been applied. And it's tempting at times to drift off, perhaps, to say to ourselves, well, then I guess there's nothing I need to do. I guess all the pressure's off. I can just live any way that I want. And Scripture is very careful to remind us that's not the outcome. As a matter of fact, because of what he has done for us, and because his righteousness is imputed to you, and because you will only be judged in the future on his righteousness alone, it frees you up in great gratitude to live out and to pursue the personal holiness that is seen both in what you say and in what you do. You know, these these Christians in Rome, they were marked out because they were distinct. They were distinct from other Romans and they were distinct from other Jews. They were a peculiar people set apart. And it was set apart because of the way that they lived and the way that they loved. So they are to imitate in order to love the truth. And then our second point this morning, just one verse, to cooperate. Now, verse 17 begins with some words that are a bit challenging to us, especially in our context, and it is this, to obey your leaders and to submit to them. Well, I think it would be important for me to let you know right at the beginning that that's not the best translation. As a matter of fact, I think that NIV is a better translation because the word there, to obey, is not the same word used, for example, in 
Ephesians 6 for children to obey their parents. Um, you don't have that kind of authority as a leader. I believe here the leaders are clearly referring to elders. A healthy church, a biblical church, is going to have a plurality of elders. You don't want to be in a church where there's only one person with all the authority. Uh, some people call it the Moses model. Well, that only worked for one person, Moses. And even then, it had its problems. A healthy church, a biblical church, a Christ-honoring gospel church is going to have a plurality of male elders. And together, they are going to serve the church, not rule over it. They are going to feed and love the flock. That is what Jesus tells Peter to do in John, at the end of John. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. This is why Peter himself, later on, when he is describing the work of an elder, is so careful to explain that it is a work that must be done in gentleness and love. He says in 1 Peter chapter 5, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd them. Now, I know that we sometimes struggle with the word shepherd because we have no context for it. I mean, when was the last time you met a shepherd? I mean, have you ever met a shepherd? We don't know what shepherds are. We don't know what they do. All we have are the, the pictures from the, the, like, you know, Christian artwork. And they're usually like some soft-looking guy with like flowing blonde hair holding a little lamb. You know, it's not what shepherds did. They didn't cuddle up with the sheep, you know, pet them, feed them bottles. Shepherds basically had one job, and that was to stay up all night and make sure wolves didn't come in and eat the sheep. They carried around big sticks, and they clubbed wolves to death. That was pretty much what they did. Or anything else that would come in to threaten the flock. And when he says shepherd the flock, there's a very strong connotation in the original language. People would have seen that, a big, burly, tough shepherd who stayed up all night and would fight to the death to protect the sheep. And so he softens it by saying this, shepherd the flock of God among you, among you, meaning know your flock and make sure your flock knows you. There was no such thing as shepherding from a pre-recorded message on a TV screen. There was no such thing as, as shepherding through the internet. You shepherded the flock that was among you. You knew them, they knew you. But notice how you did it. You exercised oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Brothers and sisters, genuine Christ-honoring elders ought to be examples. It says earlier in this text in, in Hebrews to imitate their faith the outcome of their lives. They ought to be exemplary, and the, the code of conduct that's expected of them as detailed in 1 Timothy and Titus is, is there for that reason. But consider this, not only was that shepherd to be the one who watched over the flock to protect it from wolves, to protect the flock from anything that would harm them, but they are also those ones, we're back in verse 17 now of Hebrews 13, that you are to obey. I prefer the word trust. It's a word that literally means to be persuaded by them. Be persuaded by them. Be persuaded by these leaders and submit to them. Again, this is not the word typically used for submit. In fact, this word submit only appears here in the New Testament. It's a word that is better translated to yield or to defer. It means to yield the right of way. As a general rule to these ones who, who love you and have been good examples to you, who are people of the right character, because as leaders, that is their responsibility. So before you go any further, I want to solidify this in your mind. It's a cooperation. It's not an employee-employer relationship. It's not a king-vassal relationship. It's not even like a father-son relationship. It's a cooperative relationship where you are here to trust, to be persuaded by the character and the integrity of the men who have been set apart to lead, and that you would voluntarily submit to, yield to, defer to them. In the original language here, it's, a, it's like a passive verb, like you, you do it yourself. 
It's very similar to what we have in Ephesians chapter 5, where we submit ourselves one to another voluntarily as we would to the Lord. So, trust your leaders. Voluntarily give way to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. And those who will have to give an account. They're the ones who will give an account. And by that, it doesn't mean that I'm going to give as an elder an account for your spiritual maturity. Or for your sin. You're going to give an account for your sin. I'm not going to give an account for your sin. I'm not going to give an account for the decisions you make. I'm not going to give an account for how well you do. I'm not going to give an account for a lot of things that relate directly to you. Because that's between you and the Lord. What does he mean by an account? Well, clearly, it can't be something that, that uh, you know, if it was an account for your life that, that I could, could influence. I can, I can try through the preaching of the word, through praying for you, through counseling you, through discipling you. But ultimately, the one who's going to give an account, the scripture says, is us, for us. The accounting here, that is, is like when the chief shepherd returns and he wants to make sure all the flock are there. You give an account of the flock are there. Yes, sir, they're still here. The sun comes up over the horizon and the owner of the sheep, the, the true, the chief shepherd comes and he says to me, are they all there? And I look back and I say, yes, they're all here. They're safe. They were protected. Nothing came in and ate them up. At this point, I also want to add, and again, I'm just sharing from my heart. I know a lot this morning. Sometimes a full heart means like an empty notebook when it comes to standing up here, and that's the case. I just feel like I have all these things I've wanted to say for a long time, and I'm using this text as an opportunity. So let me add this. He says that you protect them from these wolves, from those who would come in. But I want you to see what he does not say. He doesn't say, to mix a metaphor, go into the field and start picking out all the tares. He doesn't say go around and come up with a system for trying to decide if that person really is a Christian or, or not, or, or get so deep into it with them that you're going to make these declarations about them, that you're going to try to pull them out of the church because they don't live up to the standard that you've created. Jesus, using that parable, is super clear. He says, don't go out there and try to mess with it because you might pull up the wheat when you pull up the tares. Just wait, and in the end, God will judge. He will separate. The tares will be burned up, and the wheat and the grain will be brought into his barn. So, so shepherds protect mostly from external threats. And the only time we get involved with the internal threats the devouring of each other that can happen within the flock is when the church itself comes together to corporately discipline those who refuse to repent. But that's us together, cooperating, to work together to make that declaration. That isn't something that you just send the leaders off to do on their own. So, we trust our leaders, we yield the right of way to them, even at times we might not fully agree or understand, but we have to extend some level of deference and trust because they're watching over our souls. They'll give an accounting of us before the Lord one day. And then it ends with this. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Let them do it with joy. Let it be something that they, they enjoy doing. Let it be something that together uh, the people enjoy and the pastors enjoy and the flock enjoys. It's actually something that we put on display to a watching world of how people can live in harmony together. Uh, that we can put each other before ourselves, that we can show love that the world doesn't even understand. Do it with joy and not with groaning. This, this word groaning is interesting, you know. It's, it, it's a word that, that meant in other places in the Bible to, to, to be torn up inside, to, to just feel this sort of despondency over a situation, almost like a rebellion against it. Don't, don't allow yourself to be in a situation where it creates a groaning and it creates a tension and it creates strife. Just with humility, learn to love one another, to submit and to lead in a way that honors Christ. Why? Because in the end, that's what's good for all of us. He says, if it doesn't happen like that, then what good would it be? What advantage is it to you to simply stage a rebellion against those who have been placed in loving care over you? So the way that we love the truth is to imitate those who have been given to us as examples and to cooperate with them and with the rest of the body to demonstrate before a watching world what love and humility looks like when it comes together for the glory of the gospel. Amen? Well, let's be examples of that. Our Father in heaven, I thank you that the people I'm speaking to today have already put this into, into practice. This is an easy message for me to preach. Because 
It's not a message of confrontation. It's a message of celebration that you have given the people in this church these hearts already. What joy we experience, what peace we have, what fellowship we enjoy. Thank you for the way that they have submitted their hearts to you, to your word, and as a result have made shepherding a joy and not groaning. That by and large, every one of them have proven themselves to be the type of humble people that can receive shepherding. And that you have granted us by and large men who are willing to shepherd in a humble way. Lord, in your kindness, you even remove people who may in the future have caused destruction and have in the past removed those who've tried. Oh Lord, we are thankful for the pruning and the purging that you do as the chief shepherd. We are thankful that in the end, you will be the one who separates the tares from the wheat. Oh, we are thankful that we've been given clear instructions on how to guard the truth of the gospel against any of those who would seek to do it harm. And we are thankful that together as a body, we can serve and love one another and protect one another, build one another up in such a way that this place here is a refuge for those who love you, love your word, and love your people. Oh, Father, we know that that does not happen because of anything innate to us. It is your gift, it is your grace, and it is by your Spirit. And so we just pray for more and more of that. And we ask that next year, it will be even better than this year. For your glory, for our good, and for the clear proclamation of your gospel. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.